If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. His name was Franz Edmund Crefield. He arrived to Corvallis, Oregon during the autumn of 1902, and he spoke with a noticeable German-slash-Swedish accent. He was born outside of Dusseldorf, near a city named Crefeld. He'd briefly studied to become a priest and emigrated to the U.S. in the late 1890s. He had a great big bushy beard so as to look more authentically prophetic, I suppose. He was described as hypnotic. That's just about all that's known of Franz who came to believe he was Jesus Christ reborn. Franz was a member of the Salvation Army in Portland, and he'd been transferred to Corvallis, which was rural, I think, to say the least. Maud Hurt was a member of the Salvation Army in Corvallis, and that was how she encountered Crefield. She had served since 1894, and he'd been sent from his Salvation Army post in Portland to the one in rural Corvallis. Once he arrived, it didn't take long for Franz to convince a baker's dozen or so from the Salvation Army at his new station to follow his own teachings. 22-year-old Maud Hurt was the daughter of Sarah and Orlando Victor Hurt. He went by O.V. The Hurt family was well-known, and they were respected members of the community. O.V. was involved in local politics, and he was a merchant at Klein's General Merchandise Store, which became department store S.L. Klein's. Locals only? <laughs> em, do you know that store? I don't. Oh. Oh. You're from be... Corvallis, right? I am. Well, <laughs> learn. <laughs> Respect your history. Respect it. So they were about as locally famous as you could get for the time and size of the city. Maud was and had always been a very religious person. O.V. said she always tried to be a perfect Christian, a desire Crefield undoubtedly found extremely attractive. Franz soon started a new church, founded on many tenets and practices he gleaned from the Salvation Army, but he cranked them up to an extreme degree. Crefield preached the full gospel, which meant literal interpretations of the Bible. He was known as a come-outer, and come-outism refers to a movement in which Methodists were coming out of the church to find a more hardcore way to pray. Being a come-outer meant antagonism toward established churches, shunning non-believers, semi-masochism in the forms of fasting and discarding personal possessions, and a rejection of vices like booze and tobacco. It was a, quote, highly emotional practice. Crefield soon wore down the minds of his followers and chipped through their will to resist. Quote, 
Coercive control is an act or a pattern of acts of assault, threats, humiliation, and intimidation, or other abuse that is used to harm, punish, or frighten their victim. A jaw-dropping example of this type of control can be seen in the documentary Heaven's Gate, The Cult of Cults, which Alicia and I just watched on HBO or HBO Max or Max, our friend Maxwell. (laughs) Uh, It's a fascinating documentary, and there's one person that they talked to that was a former member of the cult, and they're talking to him, is it almost 30 years later after yeah. the uh, after the end of that cult? And throughout, he's in, the, he's in I think, all four episodes. And throughout the first three, when he's talking, you can hear he has a real, like, constricted voice. He kind of, he kind of talks like that. Like, he can't really, he can't really, like, enunciate anything. Yeah, it sounded like he had maybe had a stroke or a traumatic brain injury. Yeah, or damage like to his, his larynx or his vocal cords or something. And at the third, at the end of the third episode, he finally explains what that's about. And it was that, the the leader of the cult one morning made fun of his very deep voice. They had just gotten up and he had a, he had a very deep voice. And the leader of the cult, uh, is it Herf? Herf Applewhite? Mm-hmm. Had a very light, effeminate, is that? Yeah, and I feel like androgyny was kind of part of the cult so that there was no differentiating between them. And so it was like very looked down upon to have a masculine tone to his voice. And after that one incident of of his leader making fun of him, he could never speak in his natural voice again. Yeah, he was like forcing himself to restrict it. Even 30 years later. It was, I've never heard anything like that or seen anything like that. Where someone was so damaged from the brainwashing or the coercive control or whatever you want to call it, that they were still almost like, he was almost disabled like they had they put captions only under him because you really couldn't fully understand him and it was kind of self-inflicted but because of all that abuse oh and an interesting fact about heaven's gate uh it was formed in waldport oregon sure was which we will be visiting something in the water in waldport Mm -hmm. also i read a lot about waldport in my research and they were like, no, I don't know if they still are, but they were known for producing like enormous vegetables and potatoes and things like oh, that. Oh, really? Huge. One of it, well, yeah, the thing I left out of the story is that an eight pound potato that O.V. Hurt uh, uncovered and like 45 pound, uh, I don't even know what, the pumpkins or something, squash. They were huge, <laughs> huge. Anyways, good, uh, good soil enriched by the ocean's natural nutrients. <laughs> Waldport. Their first meetings took place in a rented hall space on a main street in Corvallis. Their frenzied prayer services would often last far into the night, sometimes 16 hours or more. The come-outers sang hymns, prayed, and spoke in tongues, often while rolling and flailing on the floor. They did this all as loudly as their voices could manage, which went over horribly in Corvallis. At the time, the term holy roller was already in use but it was popularized by and became inseparable from this sect, obviously from all the scream rolling, but also because Creffield said the names of his followers would be inscribed on a holy roll of paper in heaven, which would ensure their admittance. Creffield was now calling himself Joshua and claiming to be the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. Quote, After scripture reading and a discourse on the second coming, Joshua would suddenly bellow, Vile clothes be gone! at which point he would peel off his robes, any men present would let down their galluses and pull off their congress gaiters, and the ladies would shed dresses, stays, and numbers of petticoats, 
Joshua would command, Roll ye sinners, roll. And he and the congregation, all in a state of nature, would roll together on the floor with predictable results. Do you guys have any questions about the terms I used yes, in that? Yes, I want to know what all those clothing items are. Okay, well, you know what robes are. Yes. Galluses are suspenders. And Congress gaiters, uh, which I think I have a link to in my sources, are just like little cute boots. They're like little <laughs> fancy man boots. So like they were ankle like ankle boots. Yeah, ankle boots with like kind of a substantial heel on them. Yeah. Like pilgrim meets beetle boot. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yes. A, yes. A, very much. I'd say like a beetle boot. Yes. Only shorter for the ladies dresses. Yeah. Stays, I think, are I don't know. Is that like a truss or something? So kind of like a, it's like a constricting thing, kind of like a, a corset. Oh, okay. Uh, the term used for the fully boned laced bodices worn under the clothes from those people then and did it when they did that. Okay. The press casually called these events orgies, and those involved may have appeared to be consenting. However, these were incidents of mass coercive sexual abuse and rape. The group's ages ranged from 55 down to 14 years old, and Creffield made them all sleep in one room together on the floor in the nude. Marlene McDonald. A Corvallis historian said, quote, everyone who became caught up with Crefield, especially the women, were lonely, felt abandoned, or were left to themselves for long periods of time. They seemed to be looking for security, a sense of belonging, and perhaps freedom from the strictures of prim and proper Victorian society. When rumors of the group's activities spread, Corvallis city officials banned the rollers outright from gathering within city limits. Since they were no longer welcome in Corvallis, Franz and his flock moved to John Smith Island, which is a few miles south on the Willamette River. They were encamped by June and stayed throughout the summer of 1903. It was a place Crefield said would be the same as the Garden of Eden. Quote, people were not angry that he had female followers, but that they were only female. And that was mostly true, though a few men eventually joined the ranks of the come-outers. One of those men was Major Charles Brooks, who headed the Corvallis chapter of the Salvation Army. He went to the island to confront Crefield and make sure his followers were not being harmed. Instead, he was quickly swayed by and then fell for Crefield completely. Quote, It is said that the conversion of Brooks was quite spectacular, that in his spiritual excitement he saw and described the devil approaching and wrapped in a network of snakes and having frogs, lizards, and other hideous reptiles clinging to his body. As a means of placating his devilish majesty, he tore off his Salvation Army cap and coat and hurled them into the fire. Then he swooned and became oblivious to his surroundings, an incident common to the rites of the sect. Maud Hurt asked her family to join the new group on the island. Ovi's obligations at work and a disinterest in Crefield's gospel kept him home. But Sarah and 16-year-old sibling May joined Maud. 21-year-old brother Frank Hurt soon quit his job and joined the flock on Smith Island. Swept up in the religious fervor, Frank was quoted as saying Joshua Crefield was an apostle, just like the ones in the Bible. Another family torn apart by Crefield was the Hartleys, one of the wealthiest families in town. Daughter Sophie Hartley also moved to the island that summer, as did her mother, Cora. 23-year-old Mildred Hartley was in her fourth year at the Oregon Agricultural College in Corvallis, but abandoned her studies and joined them after Crefield warned that God would smite her if she remained in school. On the island, they held endless services in a 20-foot square tent built of tree branches and canvas and surrounded by six smaller tents. The women had to go barefoot, wear their hair long, 
burn their clothing and wear, quote, long, shapeless tunics called wrappers. It's basically like a burlap sack that they, I mean, classic burlap sack with like a, a rope tied around it. I nice. Think. Yeah. During this time, the group's numbers swelled to an average of 20 members. These were prominent citizens of Corvallis, and they had what he needed. Money, influence, and their female family members. There were sightings and rumors that the members of the Smith Island group were taking the Garden of Eden part seriously and were going about the camp in the nude or nearly nude. The rollers were seen by those living on nearby farms, running around praying, singing, and rolling on the ground. Sometimes the entire flock would lay out in the open in some kind of stupor, which not even a peach tossed by a surly farmer could break. They had no resources, no way of, of purchasing food or acquiring it, and their only regular food was from stolen uh, fruit from orchards uh, that surrounded the island they were on. They were all wearied from living outdoors, and word of what their unfortunate neighbors were seeing and hearing was starting to spread. They needed shelter, and Crefield needed O.V. Hurt to keep those rallying against him at a distance. So in October of 1903, the church returned to just a mile and a half outside of Corvallis and moved into the Hurt home. Ovi had tried to resist this massive change, but daughters May and Maud were relentless until he caved. The rollers were now calling themselves God's anointed, and the noise of their services could be heard from a quarter of a mile away. Like a Dracula, once Crefield was invited into the house, it didn't take long for him to ensnare O.V., who soon after his conversion resigned from his long-held position at the general store, claiming a new devotion to God after a life of sin. A few days before Halloween, Joshua commanded the rollers to take everything in the hurt house outside and burn it, which they did, gleefully. Afterward, a wild rumor began that the rollers had thrown newly adopted hurt baby, Martha B., into the fire as a sacrifice. It was total hooey, but the community was really getting sick of their shit. It is not detailed anywhere how far O.V. fell into the new church, or if he rolled the same ways as Crefield. I get the sense that the prophet was good at obscuring the assaults and rapes of his female congregants. It seemed to me that Ovi had little to no concept of this until it came out like at trial. I thought that when you told us at the live show that the feeling was that he was maybe kind of duped by everybody, especially since his whole family was in on it, to be like, okay, I guess you guys can use the house. Yeah, I think it was a combination of being duped and him not wanting to kind of lose sight of them, I think. Mm. I think I think he wanted to, yeah, to kind of maintain Yeah, your whole family them. is in on it. Yeah. Yeah. And by that time, it was pretty, it was everyone except for, uh, well, one more kid that we'll talk about in a minute. I think you're right. I wouldn't be surprised if that's something he held over him to keep him compliant to. Yeah. To be like, hey, if you listen to me and do what I say, you know, it's all good and well, but the minute you don't, you're never going to see them again. Cult guys love doing that. Josh, I couldn't help but notice when you referenced that the town started the rumors about the newborn baby, the one that they had adopted, potentially being put in that bonfire. You didn't mention what you said at the live show, which was that they did, in fact, put a dog. Yeah, in which there. was very upsetting. It sounded like Ovi was OK with it at the time there. They kind of explained it away as being a dog that was a, not a not a well-behaved dog, maybe old. I don't remember, but that they decided they were going to put it down anyway. And so mm -hmm. they, they did. And then it wound up in the fire, but it wasn't like 
a part of that. But I, think I feel it was. like that really speaks to this group's, well, just how far in they are and how willing they are to listen to him and how, I don't know that that necessarily has made them cruel, but that the, that they're willing to go that far. The depths of the yes, things they will yes. they will relinquish from their yeah. lives, yeah, and destroy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very or disturbing. To, like, not care because it was a bad dog or whatever. Yeah, yeah. that's ugh. yeah. Which which to me seems out of character for the guy that Ovi hurt seems to be. Yeah, even under the sway of that. I, mean, I guess it would have to be under the sway of someone who's telling him those yeah, things. Yeah, or again, the desperation to still be with your family. Yeah. Because if you're the one person in this whole group that's being like, no, don't do that, they're going to just or get rid of you. Questioning his motive. Yeah, they'll just kick you out and you'll never see your family again. The sheriff in Corvallis, his name was Burnett, he went to the Hurt home after he heard about this rumor just to check it out. And he, of course, saw weird sort of prayer service and, and ju- just odd things. But also Martha B., the baby, was there. There was nothing wrong with her. Based on what he saw, which was just, you know, a cult operating in this home, he took Crefield to have a sanity assessment uh, in front of a judge and a lawyer. I think some sort of physician from back then, probably just some guy. <laughs> a lawyer and a physician. Yeah. <laughs> Crefield was interviewed and found to be sane enough to go free. I don't know if Ovi Hurt discovered what was actually happening during the roller services, but at the end of November 1903, he kicked Crefield and all the rollers that weren't family off of the property. Crefield left and ended up staying at a house on the other side of the Willamette from Corvallis, rented by O.V.'s son Frank, who had been along for the ride with the Rollers since the beginning. This is the house where all the Rollers met up again after they got kicked out of O.V.'s house. Crefield's number one cohort, Brooks, headed east out of town and entered a farmhouse to rest and find something to eat and drink. The woman who was home was surprised when Brooks burst in and knelt before the fire, praising God for the warmth. He told her that he was one of God's apostles. And she said, okie dokie, I'll be right back. And then she went outside, went over to a neighbor's for help. And a group of men returned, (laughs) picked him up and threw him out of the house. Fantastic. Very cool. Crefield told the reassembled God's anointed his mission was to find the mother of the second Christ. But he didn't know which of his followers was to be this mother. So the only way to find the one was through an act of purification which of course meant sex with Crefield. Shocking. She would be Mary, and he would act as Joseph and protect her. He also said he wouldn't know which of his flock would be the one until he had sex with all of them, after which they would all be brides of Christ. Quote, And so orgies in the name of God and purification were held in Frank Hurt's house during the Christmas season of 1903. Mothers were debauched in the presence of their daughters, and daughters were debauched in the presence of their mothers. After the purifications, he said, funny story, but none of you are actually my Mary. God sent me a message that it's actually 16-year-old Esther Mitchell, who had been with the cult since the days they were still allowed within Corvallis. She had previously been coerced into sex with Crefield. But Esther's older sister caught wind of this. She said, "Uh uh-uh, and had Esther committed to the Boys and Girls Aid Society in Portland, which is a sort of orphanage, prison, insane asylum, but for children. A few days after the new year, a vigilante gang kicked in the front door of Frank Hurt's house after hearing word of the mass purification. They tied up Crefield and his three male followers and shuttled them back to Corvallis on the ferry. This group of locals, called the Whitecaps, stripped the four rollers naked and tarred and feathered them. 
The Whitecaps threatened death if Creffield returned, so he and his bros ran off into the dark. These Whitecaps were called good and respectable citizens of Corvallis, but within these unorganized Whitecap gangs, there was, quote, a significant racial element guiding this movement dedicated to asserting and upholding the status quo of the country, which was and remains inextricable from white supremacy. These white caps inspired and eventually joined the Klan, which had a resurgence in 1915. The day after the tarring and feathering, Maud met Creffield northeast at the courthouse in Albany, where they were married. And after the ceremony, they parted ways. Maud went back home, and Joshua headed to Portland. There he connected with the stars, Donna and Burgess. Donna Starr was Sarah Hurt's sister and Maud's aunt. Creffield held sermons in Portland for a few weeks, and during that time he coerced Donna Starr into having sex with him. During one of these occasions, husband Burgess caught them in the most classic of ways, when he came home early from work one day. Burgess Starr filed adultery charges against Creffield, so Creffield left the area and could not be located. After the complaint was filed, 20 other men came forward with stories of Creffield invading their families. During this time, Donna Starr was able to meet with Esther Mitchell in secret down in the Aid Society's basement, and she broke the news that 16-year-old Esther was God's choice for Joshua's new Mary. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up to your door in as little as two days. And when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out and choose more styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years, but if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours or spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothes for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy, like a pair of faux leather pants for my new band. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits, all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom or the motherly figure in your life? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send your recipient a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about, for example, your mom's life or any custom questions that you want to ask. And then she can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? 
They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories forever. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Obviously, we love anything surrounding storytelling. It's what we do. So to be able to gift this to my mom, to not only hear her stories, but the stories of my grandparents and other family members, it will create a cherished gift for all of us to enjoy. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN for 10% off today. The families of those infected by Creffield's doctrine felt they had no choice other than to have them committed to either the State Mental Hospital or the AIDS Society in Portland. Those committed included true believers Frank and Molly Hurt, Rose and Florence Seeley, Addie Bray, and matriarch Sarah Hurt. Quote, Reasons for insanity ranged from having hallucinations of communication with God to wearing one's hair down or walking around town barefoot. Although this may seem silly to someone today, a woman that walked around with no shoes and nothing pulling up her hair was seen as out of her mind. Because of how confined women were to their social roles, if they did not keep up their image even to the smallest detail of tying up their hair, the public might believe they were crazy. I would definitely have been institutionalized. I love nothing more than my hair down and no shoes. Well, seeing people walking around barefoot in town still kind of makes me wonder. So. <laughs> Back to the Hurt home on July 29th. Roy Hurt, the family's adopted 14-year-old son, was spending the morning chopping and stacking firewood. And he took a break from this chore to dig up worms to go fishing with later. And the place that he normally did this was under the house. I guess he hadn't done it in a while. So he shimmies under the house, into the crawl space, and he makes a little turn, and he comes face to face with a beast. Naked and caked in filth, it's Creffield. He's been living there for months. And he's skeletal. And in an illustration I, I saw, he's holding a little flower to entertain himself, I guess. We'll put it in the blog. Oh, yeah. Yeah, By, yeah I have many... I have so many photos it'll scare you. It's so funny because he, violence-wise, he seems somewhat harmless, but he's obviously like pretty dangerous, the control he can get. And there's just like nothing scarier than somebody being where they're not supposed to. Like somebody living somewhere, hiding oh, yeah. away. I'm frightened of people like living in attics. Yeah, yep. the garage. The house when no one's looking. Yep. So that is... And imagine being like little, you've been down there before, there's nothing down there, yeah. and then there is. Oh, I'm, I'm a little nervous to go down there because of, you know, spiders or rats or possums, whatever. And it's been a, a weird couple of years. Yeah, things have been stressful in the family. And then, hello, just the idea of thinking, okay, we got away from this guy, we're trying to get our lives back on track, and he's like almost haunting the house, like truly, just not leaving and the space he was in was measured 15 by 18 inches and six feet long. So like coffin, a tiny coffin for a grown person. Yeah, tiny. Oof. And he was there for, I think, about four months. And he'd been fed for a while by Sarah Hurt, 
but she'd been committed to the Oregon State Hospital a month earlier for talking to the floor and tending to flowers outside just at all hours of the day and night. And during those times, she was actually talking to Creffield, but to O.V., it looked like his his spouse had just lost her mind. Again, it's like a total haunting. Yeah. Like a ghost, the ghost in the floor. Creffield had had almost nothing to eat since Sarah had been taken away. And it was said he'd been laying in the pit so long and he was so malnourished he could not stand up on his own. But I think his hunger and weakness was actually a ruse, based on a quote from later in the story. It was the only way, I think, he could avoid being killed upon his discovery. Because Ovi wasn't home, I think, when, it, when he was discovered. When he got home, I believe that Creffield still hadn't like crawled out from under the house. Mm. And he like rushed home and was ready to just annihilate Creffield, to like throw him into hell. Understandably. Himself. But then he saw him and it was just so, he was so filthy, so thin and frail looking. He just like couldn't do it. And I'm sure like if you haven't really deprogrammed and that was at one point your leader or your God or your whatever, that would be hard to kind of flip that switch. Creffield's only remark when captured was to raise his hands to heaven and exclaim, I am Elijah. Do you know who Elijah is? In the Bible? Yeah. You went to Catholic school. A little while ago, about 25 years ago, I graduated. <laughs> and I wasn't into it at the time. I'm just wondering. Holy moly. Apologies. I'm wondering what the meaning is behind claiming to be Elijah. Like, was Elijah. Yeah, is that another god like name a or phoenix, something? Like born from ashes or something. Elijah was a prophet of Yahweh sent to the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of King Ahab. Who's Yahweh? Miraculous powers of prophecy and truth. Uh, but I believe Yahweh is like God. That Jesus. is God yeah. in, in uh, Hebrew, right? Yep. Uh, yep. Elijah had a, a power as a prophet and a truth teller. So that uh, makes sense. Okay. Creffield was jailed and days later he was moved to the Multnomah County Jail in Portland. And his trial took place at Pioneer Courthouse. Appearing before the judge, Creffield continued to speak as Elijah and claimed that he didn't need a lawyer, and that God would will whatever was meant to happen. He called no witnesses, and quoted extensively from the Bible, and also admitted under oath to the purification rite. On the witness stand, O.V. was called, and he said he learned that, quote, when I was away, he would come out from under the floor and hold his orgies in my home. And that's the thing that leads me to believe that Creffield wasn't really weak in the pit. He, he was filthy, though, which is awful to think about. Well, and probably weak to some extent, even if he is coming in the house, it's not like he's, you know, getting great nourishment. He's laying down for most of the time because Ovi lives there. (laughs) Man, that would suck. (laughs) He was found guilty after only 25 minutes of deliberation and sentenced to two years at the Oregon State Penitentiary. All he had to say to the judge and jury was, God bless you. He was delivered to the Oregon State Penitentiary in late September of 1904, and the next spring in May, Maud filed for divorce from him. The spell of Creffield seemed to break while he was incarcerated. His followers had, quote, been cured of their former dementia, resuming their regular lives. Elijah was released in under two years for performing community service and good behavior in prison, and he went right back to preaching. Upon his release, he said he'd been brought back from the dead to lead his faithful. And he was trying to, you know, kind of flip flip the script there a little bit by calling his time in prison his death. Uh, it's just kind of... I am reborn. 
Two months after his release, in February 1906, several of the Creffieldites were suddenly slavish congregants once again, like they'd all caught the same disease simultaneously. Creffield had sent them letters in secret. He wasted no time in reuniting with Frank Hurt and his wife and quickly made communication with Maud Hurt as well. Although she was forced to divorce Creffield in the time that he was locked up, she was still completely faithful to him, and they were soon remarried, on April 3rd in Seattle. Creffield and the Church of the Brides of Christ reassembled on the coast outside of Waldport. Esther Mitchell had been shuttled off to the Midwest, to her father's home in Illinois, before moving to Oregon City and finding work as a tailor in a wool mill. The out-of-state exile was an attempt to keep Creffield away from her, and the tailor work was just a way to pass time until she received word from Donna Starr that Creffield was heading to the Oregon coast. And the moment she did, Esther stood up, left work, and went west. Quote, Donna Starr took a train from Portland to Corvallis. From there, she hiked through the Coast Range Mountains, up towards Mary's Peak, and through terrain heavily populated by bears and cougars. She went along the Alsea River through a lush primeval forest of thousand-year-old trees that were hundreds of feet high and tens of feet thick. In some places, the vegetation was so dense that it was dark even under a bright midday sun. When she reached the Pacific in Waldport, she walked along the water's edge. There were no roads or bridges on the coast, and there were river crossings where, during high tide, she had to wait hours before going on. There were rock outcroppings where, even at low tide, she had to sprint ahead of waves to avoid being swept out to sea. All along the beach she had to avoid sinkholes that acted much like quicksand and had been known to swallow horses. She walked almost 80 miles from Corvallis to reach the site of Joshua's New Eden, the Yahats River. The New Eden didn't last long, and the rollers had to move down the coast after a girl who lived on a nearby property witnessed the rollers doing what they did. Burning clothes, running around naked, speaking in tongues, praying loudly. Creffield had no interest in this type of attention, because if he was captured, he was likely to be killed. So they moved camp a couple times, and wound up on a chilly beach at the mouth of Cummins Creek. Creffield told them to hunker down while he scouted a better location to create a new New Eden, before leaving them forever. He left after sending Maud off to Seattle, where he would soon meet her. Prior to his departure, he told the Rollers, quote, that if death was his fate, they were to eat the flesh and drink the blood of his murderer. Elijah left the camp and, quote, he went mostly by foot through the mountains to Eugene, where he caught the train to Seattle. The group on Cummins Creek was so secluded, they again began to starve. This was until a timber cruiser named Hodges stumbled upon them. He gave them all the food he had and went to get help from a nearby house. After being rejected by that house and every other nearby house, Hodges reached out and contacted O.V. Hurt, who said, God damn it, fine, <laughs> bring him over. They needed his help, and O.V. just couldn't leave them in the cold, so he welcomed them back. But he was much more welcoming without Creffield. Because mm. I think it's it, it, the moment they were away from him, it just seemed to like the... The spell seemed to like diminish, diminish, diminish. Well, and also less chances of him ending up living under his house again. Yes. I'm sure O.V. had that bricked up. <laughs> All right, Now we're in the end of April of 1906, and we're at the Yakina Bay Ferry, which is a few miles east of Newport, like the big bay there in mm. Newport. That's Yakina Bay, apparently. 
And Lewis Hartley, uh, who is one of the richest men in Corvallis, he's hunting Creffield down. His wife and at least one daughter, maybe two, uh, were part of the Rollers. And so he bought a pistol and he went to Newport. I think he, he heard word from someone that he was that he was there. And there were some news articles at the time that were kind of like tracking Creffield mm. saying like, oh, he's here. Oh, he's in Benton County. He's around. And so Lewis Hartley tracked him to this ferry. And I think it was when Creffield was was getting off of the ferry. But Lewis Hartley walked up to him just face to face, pulled out this revolver that he had bought and fired at at Creffield. But the gun misfired every time it had five rounds in it and he went through all five rounds mm. and it misfired and then he i assume, i mean i don't know what happened but i assume he said uh what would someone say back then balderdash <laughs> and he and he and he took off or go he is elijah well that's what elijah said he's like oh you know what i cannot be killed <laughs> and then lewis hartley later found out that the merchant he he purchased that gun from knew, either knew who he was or he had had heard what he was planning to do and he sold him the incorrect cartridges for his gun. So he, he sold him things that wouldn't, that wouldn't fire so that he couldn't kill somebody. After this miracle that happened uh, on the ferry, Elijah said that he, well, that he couldn't be killed. I think I already said that. But also that he had caused the San Francisco earthquake of that year and that he could do that to any other city he chose to. He could not. Thank you for clarifying. After Maude and Creffield met up in Seattle, they hid away in a rented attic room at 116 Fifth Avenue. George Mitchell, Esther's brother, followed Maude and Elijah's trail to Seattle, and he stalked the streets for a week before he found them early on the morning of May 7th. George believed he was receiving message to exact vengeance on Creffield from both God and his dead mother. Oh, so the brother was also... Yeah, that was some that a was little some, out there. Some details that I found later. Yeah, that he he felt that he was being receiving messages. God v God. That morning, Maud and Creffield left their tiny room to buy Maud a new skirt, as her only set of clothing was tattered. George spotted Creffield walking along First Avenue near Cherry Street, with Maud at his side, a few blocks down from the market, which would eventually become the world famous Pike Place Market, where they throw the fish around. George Mitchell watched them approach from far off and tucked himself into a doorway. And when the couple passed, he put a revolver to the back of Creffield's head and shot him. The bullet shattered his spinal cord and exited above the right eye. Maud showed no emotion at the assassination and pronounced that her husband would be resurrected that coming Sunday. She said he was not dead, only sleeping, and when he arose, he would become Elijah the Restorer. George Mitchell stood by the body and lit a cigar after Creffield hit the ground. A police patrolman soon appeared and placed Mitchell under arrest, and Mitchell was not elusive when police asked for his motive. He told them Creffield had to die because he had, quote, ruined his two sisters. A bystander collected the bullet that, that came out of Creffield's head. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the article doesn't say whether police collected it or not, but I, I guess not. Probably you'd someone just had it as a, up. you'd think, but I think probably gonna, just put it in his pocket. If they're going to mention it, you'd think they'd yeah. then say, and then this happened. Mm-hmm. And then they created a museum where everyone was <laughs> like, oh, that's the bullet. <laughs> wow. In jail, George first asked to send a telegram. He was given permission and had this message tippy tapped to O.V. Hurt in Corvallis. Quote, I've got my man. I'm in jail here, George. 
Ovi traveled to Seattle immediately, as did Esther Mitchell when she heard the news. George was interviewed by the Corvallis Gazette Times from jail, and he said, quote, They let this man Crefield out of the penitentiary. He wrote letters to my sisters. There was a note Donna had left. She said goodbye and that she was going to leave forever. I am sorry I had to kill a man, but I'm not afraid. I know what was going on, and I get some satisfaction that it can't go on any longer. The trial was completely lopsided from the start. Public support for George and complete hatred toward Crefield guaranteed the verdict. Not guilty by reason of insanity. Delivered July 10th, 1906. It was a sensational trial, and one of the most expensive ever at the time, at a staggering, hold on a second, just sit down and wait and listen to this number, $2,500. <sighs> what is that in today's dollars? Uh, it was a lot more. I don't know. Uh, 77000 so probably a little bit more, so rounded up to about 80000 Two days after being found not guilty, this is July 12th, George Mitchell was at the newly erected King Street Station waiting for the train to Portland. He'd been released from jail 20 minutes earlier. Surprisingly, Esther arrived to the station and approached her brother to say goodbye. She had a cloak over her arm, and when he turned at the call of his name, she pulled a revolver, put it to his head, and shot him in the same spot he had shot Crefield. George Mitchell died instantly. It was found that after George's not guilty verdict was delivered, Widow Maud left the court and purchased a $6 handgun and a box of cartridges. Esther and Maud were arrested. Esther was charged with murder and Maud for conspiracy in planning the killing with Esther. They had discussed which of them would be the better assassin, and Esther was chosen because they thought she could get closer. After their arrests, Maud said, quote, I feel a great deal more relieved, not because Mitchell was killed, but because my husband's death was avenged. Like a week, like before that, she was like, hey, he's going to be back next week. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Well, a lot of uh, conflicting statements. They have to bend their logic and I, things. I was yeah. thinking that when you were saying how he had to sleep with everybody. Well, coercively, you know, and how they would still all be the brides of Christ, but one of them would be like the mom of Christ, but then she's the mom of it, but they're all... And he was Jesus Christ already. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Slightly convoluted. <laughs> O.V. Hurt fought the devil the only way he knew how, with unyielding love and support for his family. He mortgaged the family home to fund Maud's legal needs, and in a letter to Maud, he wrote, quote, My God, my God, help us at this time. I know they will not hang my girl, but I am afraid of the penitentiary. Don't talk too much, Maud. Don't talk to anyone but your lawyer. I will send him to you. I can't write more at this time. Write to me, dear, and tell me all, your loving father. Instead, on November 16, 1906, Maud consumed strychnine in jail, which killed her in less than an hour. It had been smuggled in by a visitor of hers, and Maud had taken enough to end her life eight times over. Esther was eventually found not guilty by reason of insanity, just like her brother George, whom she'd assassinated. She was sent to the Western Washington Hospital for the Insane, which is a place built from nightmares. I'll be covering it in a future episode, but suffice to say this facility played all the hits, like physical and sexual abuse, straitjackets, hydrotherapy, forced insulin comas, lobotomies, rats, 
and other awful living conditions. She was released from the hospital in 1909 and put under the care of O.V. Hurt, who'd relocated to Waldport. Esther stayed with O.V. and Sarah for a while, and in 1914 she married a man named James Barry, who had been engaged to Maud a dozen years earlier, when what? Crefield first slithered into their lives. Within weeks of their marriage in April, Esther had become thin and ill-looking. One August night she went to bed, wrote a brief will, and died after drinking strychnine stirred into a glass of water. It was believed her lingering sickness was the result of a previous failed attempt at suicide. O.V. Hurt stuck around until 1943. He was 85 when he died. Sarah Hurt, who had been mostly restored to her former self in the intervening years, died three years later. They are buried next to each other in Yahats, on the site where they lived when they were first married. It's a fascinating story. I've never Thank heard you. anything of it. Really? That's I don't very know surprising. if I'm. Yeah, I haven't really, but that. I think I have, but I didn't really clock it, you know? Yeah, especially being in Corvallis. You'd think there'd be some oh, we don't, lore. Yeah, they don't talk about that. That's uh, for sure. Still, you think it'd be like, that's the old Creffield house. I, I dare you to go under I it. I definitely remember hearing Holy Rollers and it being in the area, but I mm. didn't really know what that meant. At what point does he go from being the guy that is dismissed rambling on the street corner yeah. about being the second coming of God to being the guy who's banging everybody? I feel like it's a subtle change. I, I feel like it isn't like I, I think he has followers before he gets to that point. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like he's probably he's probably got them all worked up. Well, and, and has a certain type of intelligence of how to manipulate people and be charismatic. Yeah. But yeah, it's damn it's guys. baffling because I can't imagine a world where I'd fall for that. But people do. Yeah. So it's, well, and that was, you know, going back to Heaven's Gate, they were like, oh, no, people that end up in cults are usually highly intelligent. Yeah. Like, you, you know, because it's easy to dismiss it and, and be like, oh, my God, you idiot. You fell for that guy. It, like, oh, I'm with people who are like minded. Mm -hmm. We're doing we're bettering the world. Yeah, I believe in the mission. Or I'm the... giving up my personal belongings and money to yeah. do something better. And I think there's a huge component, which we're seeing uh, kind of on a mass scale in our society, of the fear of embarrassment or the unwillingness to say, yeah, I was wrong. Mm -hmm. Or I don't believe in that anymore. Yeah. And I think that's ingrained, you know, because it's like, you know, religion, you start going to church as a kid and you're, you know, usually there's some sort of consequence if you leave or you're just seen as like that or whatever. And I think that mentality is still there. And it's like, well, I can't say I don't believe the thing now, but I don't. But I guess I'll drink the Kool-Aid like. And next thing you know, it's like gone too far. But I think it's fascinating. I think that's it. They get in so far that they don't see a way out, mm -hmm. even if they start to see uh, like, oh, that doesn't seem right. They mm -hmm. start to question it. But it probably feels like such a complete environment. Too, yeah. That yeah. They, that they would do a lot to protect it, to maintain it. And they're isolated and kept away from people who could potentially talk them into seeing mm -hmm. that it's bad. So there's a lot of factors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a lot of what heaven's gate the documentary kind of seemed to be about was that like they were just like in an echo chamber of their mm -hmm. own yeah their own philosophies and beliefs imagine and it, if you were left alone with your own ideals for dozens of years right <laughs> you mean 
me growing up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that I think people forget, like, that's the benefit of interacting with people at differing points of views. Mm-hmm. It starts to poke holes in yours, either makes you believe in them stronger. Yeah. Or you, you know, you were like, wait, that doesn't make sense. So oh, if yeah. you're oh, isolated from that. I mean, and we see that on a smaller scale just with social media. Like I go out of my way sometimes to be like, OK, what is the other side saying about this topic right now? So that I can have a broader understanding because what I choose to follow on Instagram are people that I agree with. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, I like that news outlet or I like that well, reporter. That or I like saying that the best argument understands the argument of the other side. Exactly. And so it's like you do have to. It's so easy now to get stuck in a vacuum of that. You really have to make an effort to say, okay, what are other thoughts about this? Or what am I not seeing of the big picture? Mm -hmm. And I think, too, like in leaving a cult or if you were, you know, this is in my mind, if I was in that position, coming out of it and you realize like the damage done, that that can be really scary. Like that's a reason to stay in it, too, because I've maybe, um, you know, I no longer talk to certain family members or I totally like blew up my family. And and to see how the, the public perceives you as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. Or like, oh, where were you for 10 years? A cult? What are you, an idiot? Like, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that it's very scary to step away. You almost have to be in a place to own it to say like, oh, I was bamboozled or I was looking for something and it turned into something else. And I think we see that a lot now where it's like, oh, I've lost family members over this. I how do I say I don't believe this thing anymore when it's caused so much damage so like Jessica and I used to do we'd be like let's go to the gym we get all cute and then we get and see how many people were there we're like "Mm, our machines are taken let's go to the buffet (laughs) hello hello that's great I didn't do anything Yet. Well, you were talking softer then. Hmm. <laughs> My biggest fear with equipment that I'm like, that sounds great. And they haven't done anything. I'm at a perfect level. Perfect. And if you don't think so, you can kiss my shit. Ah! Not you. Oh. Turtle bitch. Or no, Haymitch. She calls him Haymitch. I call him Heinrich. Haymitch. Is that Hunger Games? Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Also, is OV the worst initial combination someone could choose to go by? I kind of like it. Maybe. OV? Hmm. OV? Well, I guess, yeah. PP is probably the worst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, OV is like a cute little name. Yeah, it's well, like OB. My yeah. mom has a friend that goes by OB, and so that's probably why. Oh, yeah. Is it a horse? No, he's a man. <laughs> Okay, you have to ask. <laughs> it's true. A lot of my mom's friends are horses. Yep. Isn't that a country song? Should we make a Waldport shirt? Come to Waldport for a visit. You might leave in a cult. Things, and we're discussing Waldport, and I don't even fully know where that is except on the coast. What I learned in my research is one side of it is incredibly high crime, like higher than the rest of the U.S., only on one side of the town. It's very weird. Any corset fans? Gmail us. I love a corset. Oh. Corsets used to be my go-to Hello. outfit. My God. Yum. I had them take all bitties. Mm-hmm. Yum, you sicko. <laughs> <laughs> you nasty. When did he become so masculine today? Uh, we're, at we're Revolution Yum. <laughs> I don't know. Yum. Yum. <laughs> <laughs>
Sorry, I like it. The press casually called. <clears throat> Did that sound weird? Now. <laughs> <laughs> Sounded about right. Sound like the grandmas on that SpongeBob episode that <laughs> buy the chocolate. I don't have children, so I don't understand that reference. Oh my god, who doesn't yeah, know I don't SpongeBob? I mean, I know who he is. I don't know who these grandmothers it's are that you're speaking of. The funniest episode ever. He He's selling chocolate, and really. they're so old that one of them is just vertebrae in a wheelchair. <laughs> that's, that is that's funny. And they die like that. <laughs> oh no, she's gonna get going on her scary voice again. And you're saying that's what I sounded like? Yes. yes. Great. Correct. <laughs> Come here. Come here. Come up here. Come here. Come on. Come on. You can do it. Come here. Get up here. <laughs> this man? Yeah. Me? Yeah. No. <laughs> You're the only man in this room. Yeah, what? That's right. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I just shorten everything because I'm lazy. And you're cool. Not lazy and cool. She's lazy. Lazy, cool. sexy, cool. <laughs> <laughs> And that gurgle. Is mm-hmm. that me? I don't mm-hmm. know. <laughs> it was. Gross. <laughs> gurgle mania. Yeah. Oh, I just had one. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm over here silent? What the hell? Murder in the Rain's gurgle mania. T-shirt. T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I buy some chocolate. <laughs> you know, that's starting to sound like snapping, like you're cheering us on. <laughs> yeah, I'm, now I'm just going to do it more. No, I'm doing SOS. <laughs> Thank you, whatever that soap, uh, dish soap was back in the day that taught us SOS. Probably SOS. Josh, you got a story for us? I do, yeah. I was just waiting for the my, my tummy to, <laughs> to stop making the bubble sound it made. Oh. It was big. Yeah, it was really, really moving. I thought it might come up oh, or out. out. <laughs> oh, <laughs> always out. Better out than in. Better oh, out than, than in. My than head in. is, oof. Hmm. Round? Yeah. Who headed the Corvallis chapter of the Salvation Army? Salvation, Salvation Army. Army. Salvation Army. Salvation. Job of the Hut. I think. Hello. I was trying to segue back into oh, just work. my work, which I would love to be done with. Crefield had... I was about to complain that I was thirsty, and then I realized my drink is right here. Wow. Wow. You're a real problem solver. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that was mean. I didn't mean it. What? That you're Henry with a human voice. Oh, that's not an insult. <laughs> well, that would be, actually. <laughs> now that we've seen his... Lower jawline. <laughs> and we have a better understanding of what his voice would sound oh, like. Oh, my poor ugly little rat. Oh, he's so precious. <laughs> poor guy. <laughs> that lady shouldn't be allowed to have shears. Thinking that looks okay. Oh, and then he gets taken up to heaven in a whirlwind because he did a good job. Which is in downtown Portland near the place where the tree christmas tree goes yes right across the street pioneer what else is Court- there what's the that's called pioneer courthouse uh, court horse <laughs> those videos of people like living in people's cabinets and apartment buildings and stuff 
or like in a, a, a secret attic is so scary to me. Yeah. Wasn't there like in Japan someone that was living in someone's house for like years? Uh, that happens here so. too. Oh my God. There yeah, was a guy living in the walls. Yeah, she oh. did that. Um, oh, that per- guy under her bed. That Patreon of yeah. that guy. Yeah. I think oh we aired that on the main God. feed. I too. Think, yeah, I, I think that. about that all the time. Yeah, oh. they. She would. He had the hollowed out mattress. He would hide in. Yeah. Oof. My grandma had a family of raccoons living in her <laughs> attic, and we thought it was a human <laughs> for a while. It was very scary. After a girl who lived on a nearby property, and he stalked the streets for a week, or. Borf. Borf. <laughs> Borf. <laughs> um, okay, did we? Oh, I'm going to say really real quick to add into an edit. Really? Okay. Um, and I'm going to say. Mop, mop. <laughs> <laughs> and. <laughs> All right. I think that's everything. That's, that's a wrap, a wrap. guys. Yep. Nice job. Beautiful. Are we done? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you like it better the second time? Did you like it? Did you like it? It's funky stuff and I can't get enough of it. That's what I'll say. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production written, hosted, and edited by Josh McCullough, Emily Rowney, and Alicia Holland. Feel free to email us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. For as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe on Patreon to get exclusive access to ad-free and older episodes. For only $5, you can access Patreon-exclusive episodes and content. For more of us, be sure to follow on all the socials, listen to Josh and Alicia on their other show, Always Be My Sisters, and follow Emily on TikTok at M underscore Murder in the Rain. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>